Данное сообщение, материал, создано и или распространено иностранным средством массовой информации, выполняющим функции иностранного агента и или российским юридическим лицом, выполняющим функции иностранного агента. Hello there, you're listening to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, Medusa's English language managing editor. And you'll likely recognize that voice you just heard if you're Russian. It belongs to Leonid Parfenov, a popular journalist and documentary filmmaker. Even if you don't speak Russian, you may have gathered from his tone that uh, he was reading something pretty dry and bureaucratic. Here's the English language version of that exact same statement, read by Nina Jankowicz, a disinformation fellow at the Wilson Center and the author of How to Lose the Information War, Russia Fake News, and the Future of Conflict. She was kind enough to lend us her voice. This message content was created and or distributed by a foreign mass media outlet executing the functions of a foreign agent and or a Russian legal entity executing the functions of a foreign agent. If you visit Medusa's Russian language website, or if you peek at any itsy-bitsy little scrap of content that we've shared in Russian on social media in the last couple of weeks, you'll find this warning plastered at the top in a font twice the size of our normal text. In fact, on social media, we've had to render this warning in all caps because you can't adjust the size of the font there. If we refuse to do this, Medusa faces fines and eventually criminal liability, as well as being blocked outright in Russia. The foreign agent warning has to appear even on Medusa's advertisements, which is how we earned a living until Russia's Justice Ministry imposed this designation and these requirements on us. As a result, Medusa has launched a crowdfunding initiative asking readers to contribute donations, preferably recurring donations, to keep this news organization afloat. If we can't raise enough money to compensate for lost ad revenue, not just now, but indefinitely, there won't be a Medusa anymore. That's the sad truth of the situation right now. But what the f*** is Russia's foreign agent status anyway? How did this nightmare begin? And what exactly does it mean when you wake up one day to find out that the Justice Ministry has bestowed upon you this new title. That's the subject of today's podcast episode. Memorial runs a competition for school children on history. For instance, in 2003, I was uh, participating in the competition organized by Memorial, and actually I got the second place. So it's a, it was a very prestigious competition, in fact. But to, to run this competition, Memorial has to contact the schools and educational authorities. Since we had, we had this status, actually, it became very difficult to contact because the schools don't want to have um, anything to do with foreign agents, and the authorities are afraid as well. That's Marina Elgaltsova a lawyer with the Memorial Human Rights Center, which was designated as a foreign agent back in 2016, about four years after Russia first introduced its version of foreign agent status. Marina says this designation has caused enormous problems for her organization, which is one of the best-respected civic groups in Russia, where state officials have insisted repeatedly that the label foreign agent isn't supposed to be defamatory. 
It's just about public transparency, lawmakers argued when adopting this legislation. In practice, however, it's a very different story. And we know about cases when school children actually participated in the competition and together with their teachers, they gone to Moscow where there was a ceremony where they received some prize, where they got some presents for getting the first or the second or the third place. And then they were called, when they got home, they were called by the Federal Security Service and they had a very nasty conversation with the people from the Federal Security Service. And this service people said that, you know, Memorial is not a good organization. They are full agent. And therefore, it's bad that you are sending your children to this organization. And there's nothing in the law that would require them to do that kind of thing. That's entirely discretionary that they've just, FSB has just decided they're going to harass people that have anything to do with Memorial? Yes, of course, it's not in the law. And in fact, when the law was introduced in 2012, the reason why it was introduced, or official reason, was that, well, we had to ensure transparency of funding. So that was the main reason why. And it still is the main reason why. And of course, nobody says that a foreign agent is a bad label or has bad connotation. But everybody kind of feels it because 60% of Russians, when they were surveyed, said that a foreign agent is a spy, right? It was very interesting for me to read this transcript from the state parliament when they were discussing the law in 2012. There were some deputies who were trying to alleviate this foreign agent label. They were saying, it's fine if you want to ensure transparency, fine. We can use some other words to describe organizations that are getting money from abroad. And they were um, introducing some new labels or some new terms for these NGOs. But the MPs, the majority of the MPs were really for this term, foreign agent. They were um, not going to agree with uh, other ways how to call them. So the idea was to find the label that will be associated because of the Soviet past with the spies, with something nasty, with traitors, essentially. And I believe that this connotation is now used by the FSB as well as by the Ministry of Justice. It was interesting for me to find one publication where Ministry of Justice pronounced an NGO in Perm that was proclaimed foreign agent. And to illustrate this news, the Minister of Justice used this picture with a man in gray suit wearing a hat and this hat was sitting deeply on the forehead and and there was also an umbrella and it was so spooky and mysterious and you kind of realize that in fact it's not just an NGO foreign agent but it was a kind of a spy. Everybody understands that but still you know like uh, this is a nice term to call people who are causing troubles, and therefore it's used very widely. It's surprisingly easy to qualify for designation as a foreign agent in Russia. Practically speaking, all it takes is a website or an account on social media and the receipt of a single foreign cent, solicited or not. Tweet a tweet, receive a penny from abroad, and you've done enough to become a foreign agent in the Justice Ministry's eyes. The Russian authorities have expanded foreign agent status to three groups that essentially capture every living soul in the country. 
Foreign agent designations began with NGOs like Memorial, before they were expanded to media outlets like Radio Liberty and now Medusa, and most recently lawmakers made it possible to designate individuals as foreign agents. Now all you need is a pulse. This strange approach to policing, supposed foreign influence, relies on a liberal interpretation of what is called political activity. I asked Dmitry Dubrovsky, an associate professor at the Higher School of Economics, how this works in reality. Now, before we get into Dr. Dubrovsky's remarks, I should note that he has a foreign agent affiliation of his own as a fellow at the Center for Independent Social Research in St. Petersburg. I also need to notify you that he spoke to the Naked Pravda in a personal capacity, and his views may not reflect those of the Higher School of Economics. Actually, just listen to him give these warnings, and you'll hear in his voice how exhausting this crap can be. First of all, as a fellow of the Center of Independent Social Research, I always should announce that is the organization which is put into the list. And as an associate professor of the High School of Economics, I should announce this all the, the my statements I have made within this interview is only mine and they, they do not represent the official position of High School of Economics. And this is how every step of the independent critical voices in the in the Russia had been somehow, you know, restricted, constrained and limited. Okay, so let's get back to political activity and how it affects foreign agent designations in Russia. This original plan was to punish those who somehow intervened directly into the Russian politics, meaning election, electoral process, and and then very predictably it had been extended to the, all the possible public statements, all the critical voices, and this is the currently legislation which is directly punished and those who somehow, and now it's literally somehow, involved in the policy, in just in public policy. And, and this is the kind of total corruption and collapse of the legal system. Because in reality, when it comes to the foreign agent law implementation, so this is no even causal relationship between the money you receive and the political activity you are allegedly involved in. Because this is the, well, and, well, first of all, this is not political activity. This is just every public policy event or the every public statement you could have might be considered, will be considered as a political action. And even though you might have the kind of grant from the, foreign organization for, the, let's say, travel grants to visit the conference five years ago. And now, five years later, you have got the kind of, kind of critical statement publicly, you might be easily put into the list of foreign agents. And that's, that is how it works. And what is the extremely important here, how the authoritarian regime is mimicking, because that's the, all the current development about foreign agents, this is always supplied with the reference to the West, a reference to the RT status, for example. This is this is always, you know, kind of ad hoc legislation. So because they are when RT was put into the into the list, punished by the FARA, it, the, the the State Doom immediately started to elaborate this this legislation against the, the foreign media. 
There's quite a lot of coverage of this in the Russian media and on RT, of course, and it was discussed as both as an example of this sort of Western hypocrisy. You know, you say you have the freedom of the speech and uh, freedom of the press, and then you persecute media like RT. And also on the other side, as an example of this persecution of Russia and Russian ideas and Russian viewpoints. That's Dr. Sasha Raspopina, an associate lecturer in journalism at Middlesex University, London. When I asked her to explain the logic and the context behind Russia's laws on foreign agents, she also addressed the American government's treatment of state-run media outlets like Russia Today and Sputnik. The entire framing of this law in the discussions in the media has been that it's a forced measure. That's actually the word that they used in Russian. The phrase that they used is mera, as if to say, you know, we didn't really want to have a law in this, but it was America who forced us, you know, so it's on you, not on us, so to speak. So, and actually when Putin's press secretary was commenting on this law, as it was just accepted, he said that any persecution of the Russian media abroad will be met in Russia with objection and with a mirrored reaction. And I think it's very reasonable to ask what logic you follow as a government, where you object to something a foreign government does, and then you immediately do the same thing in your own country. You, you know, you say this foreign agent law in America doesn't make sense. Applying it to media is an assault on the freedom of the press. And actually, you know what? Let's do the very same thing in Russia. There's actually a joke I saw on Twitter about this. I don't remember who came up with it, but it was uh, basically something along the lines of the US announced that they're introducing sanctions and, and against the Russian citizens. And the Russian government is like, oh, no, you didn't. You know what we're going to do? We will also introduce sanctions against Russian citizens. What about in terms of designating individual journalists or activists as foreign agents? Because Russia started doing this, I think, last December. And it's it seems similar to the way that they designate whole media outlets, but at the same time, it's, it's you're not talking about a newsroom anymore. You're talking about just a single person who maybe got you know a freelancer check for writing some article or doing some report for. And it, it's my, my my understanding that it's it's so far it's always been for Radio Liberty, you know, content. Honestly. I see it as almost like, I mean, obviously it's made to discourage people uh, from working with media outlets that, you know, the Russian government doesn't want people to work with. But also the sort of pressures and the requirements of being a foreign agent are more uh, demanding and taxing if you're just one person who doesn't have the newsroom, potentially doesn't have any, you know, legal teams behind them, or, you know, just even the money, the sort of things that you have to go through. I think you have to register basically a firm legal entity for yourself. And honestly, just it sounds like too much. And I wouldn't be surprised that even for really good journalists, it might be just easier to work with other media outlets. You know, even journalists who are actually driven, who produce great investigations, just because it's additional admin work, basically, just burying people in admin work. I also asked Marina Algaltsova about these paperwork requirements for NGOs, and she laid out the details for me. They uh, have to establish an uh, an organization, a company here, uh, so that the Ministry of Justice uh, has a chance uh, to kind of correspond uh, with this entity. Mainly, there are several, several, several difficulties for for everybody for an agent. These these are the reporting procedures because the NGOs, for instance, NGOs have to are subject to very difficult reporting procedures. They have to do the auditing once per year. They have to submit various reports to various authorities. 
The same applies also to the foreign agent mass media and also to the people. They have to report every uh, six months to, to Russian authorities about the activities. But these reports, it turns out, will soon become more complicated thanks to even more police powers coming the Justice Ministry's way. We don't know how it's going to be implemented, but basically every year the NGO foreign agent has to come to the Ministry of Justice and say, hey, we are going to implement this program and these are the events that we are going to have. And the Ministry of Justice can say, hmm, well, I don't think that you have to implement this program. And therefore, I don't allow you to do that. And if you still do it, despite the fact that I am against it, I will go to the court and liquidate you. So we don't know how it's going to be applied, but according to the law, this is the new power that the Minister of Justice got. It's passed only actually this year in April. Uh, it became the law and it's going to be in force starting from November. So we don't know how it's going to be applied. Sooner or later, pretty much any conversation about Russia's foreign agent laws becomes a debate on the Foreign Agents Registration Act, or FARA or FARA, in the United States, which is ostensibly the inspiration for everything Russia is doing now. For example, Brian McDonald, the head of the online Russia desk at the English language edition of Russia Today, has said publicly that he believes foreign agent labeling in Russia and in the United States is nonsense. But he makes a point every time he says this, of blaming the U.S. for starting it. To get a better sense of how this comparison holds up, I spoke to Casey Michelle, a journalist who's reported extensively on Farah and who's writing a book due out this November titled American Kleptocracy. You don't have to squint to see these similarities, to see that this was exactly what so many people believed it to be at the time and have only continued believing it to be since. That is to say a cynical imitation of a pre-existing statute or law in the uh, in the US. I mean, look at the terminology itself. This is foreign agents through and through. They could have picked any term, they could have picked any phrasing that they wanted. It just so happens that they picked the exact one that had been in the US. The US's Foreign Agents Registration Act, FARA, was first passed back in 1938. Right? So this is something that has been in the US for decades and decades and decades, the better part of a century now. It was introduced in 1938, predicated on one specific individual, a guy named Ivy Lee, who is considered the father of modern PR, and who just so happened in the mid and late 1930s to be working on the payroll of the, the Nazi government in, in Berlin. And it turns out the American legislators didn't like that very much because he was going around spouting pro-Nazi nonsense. And they said, well, who's paying you? And he said, well, I am under no compunction to disclose that whatsoever. And American legislators said, well, maybe we should do something about that. So in 1938, they pass a law that has seen a couple amendments and iterations through the years. But at its core, what we have seen for this law since 1938, so now we're talking about you know 83 years since, is that this effectively requires any individual on the payroll of and working at the behest of uh, a foreign government or other foreign state linked entities. These can be oligarchic entities. These can be companies, any of those other entities that are maybe not nominally part of the state, but are still working at the behest of the state. If you're an American working on their behalf and being paid to lobby or to spout or to publish or to discuss elements of or, or, or praise for those regimes, those companies, those individuals, 
you are required to register your name, register your contact information, register the details of your relationship, the payment details, the payment structures, who exactly you are working with, either regarding the regime itself or again, some of these related entities and how you are going about those services in the US. Who are you meeting with? What are you publishing? What are you saying? And then why are you doing that? Obviously being the details of the uh, the contract. That's that's Farah at its core. Is it Farah or is it Farah? You can call it, you can call it, you can call it. Either both okay. are perfectly acceptable. Is there is there like a regional thing happening here? <laughs> I have not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm calling, I'm calling, you know, usually based in New York, I'm calling from the South. I haven't noticed uh -huh. any, any, any differences. I, I will say, Kevin, I have my shot glass from my wedding right here. I don't know if you can see, hashtag reform Farah. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Right there, so and also hashtag fireball. I'm well, that too. <laughs> that's a, that's a different story <laughs> itself. We don't have to go into the details of that one, but uh, but yeah, people at the wedding were saying Farah, Farah. You know, they were there. They were having a good time. So let's call the whole thing. Oh, they didn't, hopefully they didn't say let's call the whole no, thing. No, they didn't. <laughs> and I, as far as I know, we didn't we didn't have any Farah registered uh, entities or individuals at the wedding uh -huh. either. But but that's okay. Uh -huh. Maybe they're just late okay. on, late on filing the documents. Right, right. So in terms of of the U.S. foreign agents law. It's been around for all these decades. You know, they brought it in against the against the Nazis, essentially. How do we get specifically to this affecting a, a media outlet? Now, does the fact that RT and Sputnik that they're that they that you know their affiliates and 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 their offices and so on that they're told to register with with FARA, does that suggest that the U.S. government does not view them as news outlets, or is it that this now applies to news outlets as well? Because what you describe sounds like like you know it's lobbying of sorts. How do we get from lobbying to ostensibly a news organization? Looking at this from the outside in, that is to say, looking at it as a, as a journalist or a researcher, it certainly appears that the U.S. government no longer considers. I mean, if it ever did, outlets like RT, outlets like Sputnik as veritable news organizations. Much of that, again, is predicated on the role that the U.S. government, whether it's the you know, director of national intelligence, whether it is the State Department, viewed RT's and Sputnik's role in the 2016 interference operations. That is to say, as a key component of amplifying, of disseminating, of liaising with other elements, with other individuals, organizations involved in those interference operations. So all of which is to say, this is a direct outgrowth of how the U.S. government views RT's and Sputnik's role in the 2016 interference operations. Again, if the 2016 interference operations had never happened, not only would we not be talking about FARA, but certainly RT and Sputnik would not have been required to register. It's fair to presume they would not have been required to register with the Department of Justice. Now, that's the first question about how the DOJ views them. The second question is a little bit trickier because on the one hand, you can certainly extrapolate this forward as saying, okay, the U.S. Department of Justice is increasingly interested in and focused on potential nominal media outlets that are funded by foreign governments or funded by foreign sources. And DOJ is going to increase its oversight of those outlets moving forward, increase the paperwork requirements, increase the filing requirements. You know, if we see the case of RT, we see the case of Sputnik, you know, there's a fair argument to say moving forward, that's going to be the bare minimum that similar organizations are going to be required to do and comply with. But the catch to that is, or the caveat to that is, RT and Sputnik are not the first media outlets to have to register with DOJ. In the 80s and in the 90s, we saw outlets from China, outlets from South Korea, outlets from Japan that were required to register 
with the Department of Justice. Again, these weren't necessarily high-level cases. These weren't even necessarily high-level outlets. But at the time, the DOJ saw these outlets as prongs of foreign governments or as mouthpieces for those foreign governments targeting American audiences. And that was kind of the proof of concept that DOJ can and will require media outlets to register. And as far as I've been able to tell, as far as other, as as other researchers have been able to tell, this didn't materially affect the output of or the funding for or the personnel within these outlets. They continued as, as, uh, as they ever had. They continued publishing. They continued pushing forward. You know, they didn't have to disclose, you know, a banner on the top of their website or the top of their publication that they're foreign, foreign agents. So all of which is to say the RT and Sputnik registration is not something that's necessarily new in the U.S. So in that sense, it's not necessarily the watershed that I think some others have viewed it as or assumed it to be. So the filing requirements, how how invasive are they? Because one of the points that that's made often with the Russian filing requirements is that that they're they're expensive for one thing. You have to you have to you have to create a legal entity in Russia. And then essentially you have to pay a lawyer, you know, a few thousand dollars, if, if not regularly for audits as well. And that if you make a single mistake, all it takes is, I think, two administrative offenses and then you're liable for felony. You, know, you, can get, you can get charged with a felony. The higher editors can, I believe. And if you're an individual foreign agent, then you're liable personally for felony crime if it's just two filing mistakes. And so the filing aspect of the Russian law is, is pretty significant. It's something that really scares people and it can be expensive. What about in the United States? Yeah, I mean, the U.S., you still have certain costs associated with it. That is to say, you know, legal fees, hiring a lawyer to make sure that all the proper documentation is signed where it should be, or at least that's what these outlets and entities should be doing. I suppose they could do it without a lawyer, but you know, more power to them if, if they want to go, go that, that route. No, I mean, the U.S. filing system is, is, is relatively perfunctory and it's relatively straightforward. You know, the, all the documentation is easy enough to, to file. Some fair filings can be as short as three, four, five pages. And as we have seen from the U.S. side of things, you know, so long as you weren't a member of the, the Trump campaign in 2016, the U.S. has still provided for uh, certain flexibility as it pertains, you know, if you make a, a clerical mistake or if you forget to fill in a box, you know, the US DOJ, it doesn't have a hammer and see every single misstep as a nail that needs to be, be hammered. There's still a very clear flexibility and willingness to make sure that these entities are filing the, you know, the proper paperwork and the proper uh, documentation. Because at the end of the day, the, the purpose of FARA is not to prosecute these individuals or these organizations or, you know, outlets like Sputnik and RT. It is to disclose to the American public, to the American people, and you know, beyond that, you know, whoever would like to access the, the online FARA database, who these individuals are, who these entities are, who they're being paid by, and what they're doing. It's almost like they're, it, the disclosure is more to the government, not even to the public. Whereas in, in Russia, you could argue, oh, it's for the people. That's why you have to plaster it all over your website and every tweet whereas with with far it's like you know we'll we'll put it in a little corner of the doj website and if anybody wants to go look for it then there it is but it's not as though i mean like our if you if you flip on rt or go to net go to their website from wisconsin or something you don't you're not greeted with something saying oh here's our fire registration yeah there's no there's no giant banner on the top of the uh, top of the website saying you know here's our, our, our registration number here's the link to the filings One of the comparisons that I also see is not so much to U.S. government policy, but to, like, say, what Facebook or Twitter does. And so 
I know that RT is very unhappy with Facebook taking down this or that kind of pet project. Like, I can't even remember what, what which ones, but like, you know, it happens to this or that kind of offshoot of RT. Some of them are direct offshoots. Some of them are kind of re- related. Like, there's, there's, what is it like in the now? They have some kind of like LLC in Delaware, and it's you know they they uh, they've they've sued Facebook because they they were labeled as you know Russian state media, and Simonyan rejects having the that label on her Twitter account and so on. And so RT and and Russian officials in general, they they seem to conflate anything that Facebook or Twitter does with the the Justice Department essentially. And so I wonder, you know, I obviously there's separate <laughs> but and i suppose it would depend on one's politics whether you argue oh well they're they're taking their cues from the democrats or this or that i mean like i'm sure there are people that would argue that and you know you just kind of would have to take it on faith i, I, I assume but how in terms of silicon valley's response to what is essentially kind of the, the foreign asian threat i guess like how 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 does that fit into the story yeah, I mean, you know, there's a couple ways to respond to that. One, what you just said, obviously, Facebook and Twitter are private companies. They can create their own policies. They can implement their own policies, implement their own disclosures, however they see fit. Again, because you know, they, they are not part of the American government. Um, it seems to be in, in the last maybe two years or so that Facebook and Twitter, and for reasons that I have not been made privy to, are far more willing to be far more proactive than anybody in DOJ, anybody in the FARA unit at DOJ when it comes to disclosures, when it comes to requiring pages and outlets and individuals to disclose they are Russian state media or Turkish state media or Saudi state media, what, what have you, than DOJ has been. So if we think about you know, what we were talking about earlier, yes, DOJ required uh, RT, you know, Rosia Savonia, RT and, and Sputnik to, uh, to file on you know, file documentation with DOJ. And yes, RT and, and Sputnik now have those disclosures on Facebook and Twitter as well, that they are Russian state media. But you know, the, the outlet that you just mentioned, you know, these kinds of spin-offs of RT, these spin-offs of, of Sputnik, this, this that one outlet you mentioned called In the Now, you know, it's its corporate entity is called Mafic Media, and it runs a number of outlets and platforms themselves. You have In the Now, you have Soapbox, you have another one whose whose name I'm I'm blanking on. All of which in the last two years, Facebook and Twitter have required them to disclose right there, right in their description, right in their bio, that they are Russian state controlled entities. That is to say, they are pages and platforms or individuals that are, as far as Facebook and Twitter can tell or are willing to say, no different than RT, no different than Sputnik. But if you examine the filings in the FARA database, there's nothing about in the now. There's nothing about Mafic Media. There's nothing about Soapbox. And as far as I can tell, there's no interest on the DOJ side, on the FAIR side, to get them to file anything. Now, th- that gets into you know different questions. As you mentioned, they have a, a Delaware LLC. That's their technical corporate entity that they also have a, an entity in California. So they have this very interesting corporate structure behind them. But that's just kind of one case study in what seems to be a kind of differentiation between Facebook and Twitter really beginning to lean into these disclosures on these pages and the DOJ still, even though it's moving forward in terms of personnel and funding and being more proactive in terms of requiring paperwork and filings, it's still very clearly reticent to follow everything that Facebook and everything that Twitter are are doing. In all this talk about paperwork burdens and problems with the police, it's worth remembering that many Russian NGOs simply dissolve 
after the Justice Ministry designates them as a foreign agent. That's what happened to the Dynasty Foundation, which was Russia's only private funder of scientific research until it folded in 2015, when its founder, Dmitry Zimin, decided that he didn't want to sustain a foreign agent NGO. I spoke to Marina Algaltsova about Dynasty's bitter end. Looking back, she says Russia's treatment of foreign agents today should be compared to events in the United States. Not to modern-day FARA enforcement, but to the ideological persecution of groups and individuals during the era of McCarthyism. For Russian NGOs, the fact that they've been proclaimed a foreign agent meant that a lot of them got liquidated. A lot of organizations didn't want to have the status and they thought that they just don't deserve it. For instance, there was an organization that was really, what it was giving, it was giving grants to Russian scientists. So this organization is called Dynastia, or to be honest, was called Dynastia, Dynasty. And it was, you know, a really nice organization that was supporting talents in Russian science. But, and it was run by a Russian businessman, although it was funded from a Cyprus company established by this Russian businessman. And since it was funded from abroad, and of course it had some statements out there put on the website, it was proclaimed a foreign agent. And then this businessman was like, well, I am paying this from my own pocket and I think that I do something good for my country. I don't want to call myself a foreign agent. And so he liquidated this company, this organization. And a lot of organizations were liquidated either by themselves or by the Ministry of Justice or by other authorities because of the status. I believe that was, you know, a step further in the big strategy of cracking down on Russian civil society that actually started in 2006. So at that time in 2006, they were just making sure that the reporting was very difficult, that uh, small NGOs would not be able to comply with the reporting mechanism and requirements. But now, you know, like we've got really crazy stuff going on that everybody can be proclaimed for an agent, no matter that you are not an NGO, not a mass media outlet, but as long as you receive something from abroad and then you post something on Facebook of Kontakte or Nafasniki, these are Russian mas- um, social media platforms, that's it. That's already enough. So that really reminds me of what was going in the United States in the 50s when you had McCarthyism going on. So I believe that this is exactly what's going on here. I just hope that it will end at some point. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English-language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, we talked about foreign agent status in Russia and the United States, and you heard from Dr. Sasha Raspopana, an associate lecturer in journalism at Middlesex University, London, Dmitry Dubrovsky, an associate professor at the Higher School of Economics, Marina Algalsova, a lawyer at the Memorial Human Rights Center, and Casey Michelle, a journalist and the author of the forthcoming book, American Kleptocracy, coming out this November. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa. It's our only English language show. And I hope you recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. Also, if you value Medusa's reporting, either in English or in Russian or both, please consider making a donation at support.meduza.io. And then you can throw in a slash en if you want to read the English version. Doesn't matter. Support.meduza.io. That's what you want to, that's, that's the thing to remember. Anyway, you go there, you make a pledge and you can help sustain our work. 
Recurring pledges help more, but we'll take whatever you can spare, of course. Thank you for listening, and come back soon. Mm-hmm.